Hello, you're listening to No Such Word Is Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I get to sit down and talk to someone who used to write one of the most relatable blogs out there for marine mammal trainers. I am, of course, talking about the middle flipper. It's Cat Rust, everybody! Hello! Hi, Cat. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to sit down and chat with you. But for anyone who maybe got into the field after you were writing your blog and maybe doesn't know who you are, could you give yourself a brief introduction, please? Sure. Um, so my name is Kat Rust, and I was a marine mammal trainer from 2005 until uh, 2017. And then I went back to school and got my master's in forensic science and have been a forensic DNA analyst since 2018. So that's what I do now. Yeah, quite a big career change. But like you yeah. said, you were in the marine mammal field for quite a long time. So what first made you want to get into the marine mammal industry? Oh, man. Um, I just, there was, there was just something about dolphins specifically that I just thought were incredible I think they were the first animal that really made me think about non-human animal cognition and language and things like that and so I just really wanted to not just get to work with them and get to know them better but also share that passion with others so other you know guests or other people in the general public so that they cared about dolphins as much as I did. Yeah, I feel like cetaceans in general do have this thing about them that tends to draw people in. Um, did you grow up in the generation that I did where we were all thinking we were going to become marine biologists? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. I'm in the free willy generation. And yep. uh, <laughs> yeah, that was that was what I thought was required. And and of course, when I went to my, get my undergrad, I was a marine biology major for like two semesters and then switched to zoology. Um, but yeah, I feel like that was sort of the heyday of, of a surge of people wanting to be marine mammal trainers is seeing Zeus and Roxanne and Free Willy and all those movies that yeah. showed how amazing cetaceans are. I do find it really funny that the movie Free Willy had such a strong anti-captivity argument made so many people want to become trainers. That's a really good point. I never thought about it like that, but that's true. That's true. I think it's just that, that connection that you see between an orca and a person that that sort of supersedes all the other messaging. Because yeah. as it, I mean, I was, I think, 10 when I first saw that movie. Mm. And I, I couldn't understand the anti-captivity message until I was older. But yeah. when I watched that movie, I was like, oh, my God this is incredible. These animals are amazing. How do I, how do I do that? Yeah. I think I'm getting so off topic talking about this movie, but <laughs> I, I think what the movie did really well is that they didn't make the trainer the villain. 
they made yeah. like the court it was the corporate guys who were the villains who like wanted the insurance money um yes so I think everyone saw the trainer and was like oh she loves the animals too and she wants what's best for the animal and I'm like where is that narrative gone <laughs> I agree that's a very good point I think that's very that's still apropos today so was there a reason why you switched your major to zoology instead of marine biology um, I think just realizing that marine biology is just so broad of a of a t- um, degree or topic. Mm. Um, I really wanted to focus more on like animal physiology and animal behavior. Mm. And I was just lucky enough that my school had a zoology track that had a focus in animal behavior and vertebrate morphology and stuff like that. So that was more interesting to me. Mm. And my advisor was like, listen, you know, you're going to be here for a while, so you might as well do something (laughs) you like. So I switched over and I'm very glad I did. Did you always have it in your mind when you were studying that you wanted to be a trainer or were your options open? No, I, I pretty much wanted to be a trainer. That was my main Mm -hmm. goal. I had an interest in research and I had an interest also in forensic science, but, um, what kept, what what kept prevailing was my interest in becoming a trainer. And how did you make that happen? Um, well, I got an internship at Clearwater Marine Aquarium and ended up staying there six months um, and falling in love with it. And then I just did everything I could to try to get my first job um, applied everywhere in the U.S. Um, and took some swim tests, you know, just kept trying to apply everywhere I could interviewing not getting the jobs and then just keep getting back up and and trying again until I finally landed my first job at Miami Seaquarium so yeah it was just a lot of hitting a lot of walls but getting back up again and trying trying again yeah definitely you need a lot of resilience um when you first are getting started in this industry so when you made your first job as a dolphin trainer your reality what did it feel like oh it was it was I think about this um this show that my daughter watches she's seven and there's an episode that talks about how you can have two feelings at the same time (laughs) and that's Mm -hmm. okay and that is kind of how I felt um I was terrified and super excited and I, th- oh, sorry, I touched my mic. Um, and that- <laughs> the audio didn't pick it up. You're fine. <laughs> oh, good, good. Um, and yeah, so I remember just feeling like, I don't know anything. I don't know if I'll ever know anything. Everybody mm-hmm. seems to know what they're doing and I don't. So maybe like severe imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. but also a tremendous pride that I actually landed the job and just like, okay, I'm going to learn what I need to learn and we'll see how it goes. So it was definitely two conflicting feelings for the first couple months. I find it really funny in this industry as well that so many people or such a big focus is put on getting the job that a lot of people forget about, oh, I actually have to learn how to do the job and I need to be good at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. It's, um, it's not just competitive trying to get in it. It's competitive once you're in it. And I think that also it may have to do with the culture of the place that you're at. 
Like I, my first job, my first paid job was so different than what it was like at my internship. And at Mm. my internship, it was lucky because I was able to work with the otters and the dolphins on my own. Mm -hmm. So I had a little experience of, of what that was like, but the environment was more, um, comfortable. There really wasn't a super sense of competition. Like, oh, I know I can do these many behaviors with this dolphin and this Mm. person can't. But for some reason at the sea aquarium, there was a very different vibe when I was there. And this is, Mm -hmm. you know, 2006. So a long time ago. Um, but just that feeling of you're starting with a lot of other new trainers and you want to be like the best Mm -hmm. and how easy it is to kind of go from a healthy, you know, drive to do the best job you can to being a little bit more competitive with people that you really don't need to compete with. But nobody really talks about that to your point. So it's something you kind of have to learn on your own. Yeah, I love that you you spoke about the competitiveness because it's so true. And even when I look back at my own career, I cringe thinking about how competitive I was as an (laughs) intern, like to the detriment literally of almost anything else you know I wanted the job so badly and obviously the competitiveness helped because I got the job but yeah I think when there's so many you made the point about people starting out at the same time you do start to compare yourself to other people and think oh well why are they learning these things before I am right right yeah it definitely um it definitely I think can be to the detriment um so we can't forget that once you get the job you need to start focusing on actually being able to do the job. Yes. Yes. And try your best to just focus on your own path and not what other people are doing because everybody moves at different paces. And then the one thing I, another thing I don't think we really learn right off the bat until we have some more experience is just that the animals aren't like little programmable machines. So you, I, I recall many times when it would be like my turn to learn something on a specific dolphin Mm -hmm. and the dolphin would go through a period of just behavior breakdown and stuff like that Mm -hmm. where only experienced trainers could work them and so my learning would stop because there was an issue behaviorally with the animal but then I'd see other you know trainers at my level sailing ahead because their dolphins were not experiencing that Mm. same thing but it all evens out in the end because it's always as you know going up and down and it really depends on the animals that you're working with and what they're what they're up to um so I'd say to any new trainer that (laughs) you just have to know that sometimes you're gonna stall and it doesn't mean it's gonna last forever it'll it'll pass and then you'll learn your stuff yeah, I always tell my my mentees who are just getting started in their careers, like, don't think about it as within six month blocks, you know, because I think you can get very focused on, especially when you're starting out, you know, those first six months or your first year, what you're learning in that period of time. Think about it as over the longevity of your entire career. Those six months, it's no time at all. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It feels like it in the moment, but it does. You can you can get (laughs) through it. Yeah. Once you get through it like once or twice, then yeah, you kind of have that long, that long range perspective of like, okay, this is gonna pass. It's fine. I can wait six months. It's not a big deal. Yeah. So how long did you work at the Seaquarium before moving on to your second job? Um, I only worked there about a year 
a little under a year and a half. Um, and then I moved to Marineland, Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked, so this <laughs> total, I worked at Marineland a little over five years, but in the middle, I I call it like a sabbatical. <laughs> I went back to Clearwater Marine Aquarium when they were filming the first dolphin tale. And I worked there for, um, gosh, like five months, maybe six months. And it was, it was for me such a terrible experience that I came back to Marineland happily. And, um, and then after that, I moved on to the Gulfarium in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And I was there for about three years. And then I moved to uh, Maryland where I am now. Mm-hmm. where I worked at National Aquarium. And that was yeah. when I was like, I got to change something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm, I got to go back <laughs> to school and, and do something else. And uh, now I'm in a totally different field. Yeah. Why was your time at Clearwater so unfun? Was it to do with the filming or? No, that part was cool. That part was really cool. I, I got to meet all kinds of people. Um and I really liked that. I I liked seeing. I liked seeing how movies were made. I really enjoyed interacting with the actors. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them chose on their own time to spend time with us trainers to learn more about like what we did and awesome. learn more about the animals. Yeah, one in particular, her name's Austin. She was like, she shadowed us. She was basically like an intern. And she helped us with all the all facets of the job, which was I thought was really cool. Um, but you know, the, it was the the particular there was a particular person who worked in upper management there who was treating women poorly, mm-hmm. um, and I was I was one of the people that he targeted. And it was just so uncomfortable and at one point kind of scary. And I was like, I can't work in this environment anymore. It's just too, it's too much. So the training trainers were great. Um, Animals are great. The movie experience was great, but it was just, I just didn't feel safe working there. Um, And so I moved back to my first love, which was uh, Marineland, Florida. That's such a shame that just one person could impact not only your time spent there, but also kind of alter the course of your career. That's a real shame. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish it was different, but you know, it, I learned, I learned a lot um, from Mm. that. And I think that particular issue took, it took about 10 years for that to really come to light, but it, it's, it was uh, rectified good okay that's good yeah Um, what was it like actually filming a movie around marine mammals because I can imagine that's very different to filming a movie you know on a film set (laughs) how did they not get the cameras wet (laughs) I know oh my gosh yeah they (laughs) I I don't know how they never got their cameras wet I mean I think I do think some of the equipment was meant to be around water because Mm. they a lot of the people that were working around the set were people who have experience filming like scenes on the water or scenes Mm. with boats Mm -hmm. but it was mostly just the amount of decent work that had to go into um 
getting the animals used to the cameras and the all the sound equipment um that was all stuff that was done prior to me coming there so the trainers really did an amazing job um getting them ready for that but it was really long days like i think that you know i'd be there 12 to 16 hours a day i didn't really work that much with winter but i worked i was kind of in charge of the other animals at the time and i remember specifically there uh there was a day where they needed to film shots of our north american river otters Mm -hmm. and they wanted to actually lower the camera on this huge boom into the otter exhibit and i was like you cannot do that (laughs) they will first destroy your multi whatever hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment but then they're gonna escape and then i'm just gonna have to walk away yeah (laughs) (laughs) because i don't know what i would do in that situation so we had to come up with different solutions so that the otters could get filmed but uh, they would stay in their habitat yeah it definitely sounds like a challenge a fun training challenge though I suppose yeah it was there there were times um there were times like in particular with one of the dolphins where she just she there was a scene that needed to be filmed and I don't remember what take we were on but she just was like I'm done with this and she swam away and I remember sitting there thinking like, oh, you know, my trainer brain knows I should just end the session. And I actually should have ended this long before this happened. Mm-hmm. But then there's the pressure of like everybody. There are so many people that make it takes to make a movie. It's crazy. So it's like the actors and the director and the entire production staff and all these other people. I don't even know what they do, but they're all standing and staring at you. Mm-hmm. Like we got to get this shot. Yeah. And uh, that was, so there are times when it was really challenging to be like, I, I don't think we can get this shot right now. And luckily everybody was very understanding of that. So it was more in my own head that I was worried about it. They were actually really cool about that kind of thing. Yeah. They always do say don't work with children or animals. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So when you moved back to Marineland, was that around about the time that you started writing your blog? (laughs) Yes, it was sort of a false start because at the time, um, Georgia Aquarium had just literally just purchased Marineland, like within a week or two of me going back. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had my blog out, I don't know, maybe like a month and the I don't know so who, I don't know what department was in charge of this but basically Georgia Aquarium was like you can't write this blog so um I got written up for it and then oh no yeah and then I had to stop writing it so it was on hiatus until I moved to Gulfarium in 2013 the January of 2013 and then I talked to my boss at the time and I'm like is there a problem with me writing this blog so I don't get written up again? Um, and they were they were fine with it. So that's when it really started to and and was more of a regular weekly thing. Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of people who aren't in the industry don't understand, you know, how much trainers are prevented from talking about things publicly. Um, and in my personal experience, I feel extremely lucky that Marineland 
onto you been France not the same marine land you worked at um yeah were very very understanding when I literally came to them and were like hey I want to write a book hey I want to make YouTube videos I want to write a blog is that okay and they were like yeah great go ahead do whatever you want that's awesome they were basically like you can say whatever you want but if you say the wrong thing be careful and I was like, yeah. well, I'm not going to be saying the wrong thing. Like, I, <laughs> I I, trust myself to kind of understand where the line is. Um, and they've all, they continue to be supportive, which is amazing. But That's awesome. How did it feel for you when you finally did get to start writing your blog? Did you feel like a sense of agency? You were like, oh, finally, I can talk about these things because... It was definitely for me like the first of its kind where there was a trainer talking about what it was like to be a trainer. I, I um, that's I love I'm speechless. I that <laughs> means a lot to me. And here you say that um, that yeah, I I felt like I did want to create something where people felt like they could feel seen at least, mm. um, or at least be encouraged. That initially it was if the animals don't want to do what you want them to do, like relax, it's fine. Mm -hmm. It's part of the funny part of our job. Um, Which is why it was called the middle flipper. Yes. Yes. Not, I have to be, I have to be honest though. I did not coin that phrase. It was my supervisor. Her name is Donna. Well, now her last name is Willis, but Donna would always say, Oh, that dolphin just gave me the middle flipper every mm-hmm. time that dolphin would refuse something or just swim away. And so I was like, that's great. I got to use that. <laughs> Can I use that as my blog name? Um, but yeah, I I did. I guess, yeah, I did feel a sense of agency, especially as I started getting feedback from people that they liked it. Yeah. Then I was like, oh, good, good, good. I, I would be honored to help be a voice to people who maybe can't because of their facility rules or they just aren't sure how to express what they think especially when times get rough you just you had this really special way of being incredibly relatable and talking about sometimes difficult topics you know like animal death and you know really hard parts of the job in such a sarcastic and (laughs) humorous way that just made it so enjoyable to read oh thank you I'm I'm glad that's definitely I think that's the only writing style I know how to do so (laughs) I'm glad that it worked (laughs) it definitely worked it was so relatable um you know and you cranked that thing out like every Sunday for how long oh my god I think four years was the yeah that was it was really hard to let that go um that was something that I looked forward to writing even on the times when I wasn't like I remember once I was at an IMATA conference and I was like I gotta write this thing and I wrote it on my phone Mm. and published it and thought this is crazy I have like a problem like I should be able to take a one weekend off or something but I just I couldn't I was just so addicted to to coming up with things and and sharing it with people but yeah, it that I, I'm so happy at how well received it was. Oh, definitely. Like I, I know a lot of people that really connected um with your writing. You know, it like I said, I think it was one of the first truly relatable things out there. I mean, that was back when it was really just Facebook that was the only mainly used social media platform. You know, you didn't have 
you know, I think nowadays there's maybe some more trainers that are able to come out and talk about things more openly. Mm-hmm. Um, although there are definitely some facilities that are still quite closed off. Um, you know, you made a change, you left the field, you got your master's in forensic, um, forensic science. Yep. Forensic science. Um, Recently, you started talking out again on behalf of marine mammal trainers. What made you decide to reopen the subject? Oh, um, it's something that I wanted to do long ago, mm-hmm. um, especially as I le- as I left the field. Um, but the first thing that kind of stopped me was that I wasn't sure how to convey that message and I was working through my own it's like I don't know if you felt like this but I felt like leaving the field was like a terrible breakup it was like I knew it was good for me but it was just sad mm-hmm. and um you know and your for me my that was like a huge part of my identity oh yeah that now I'm closing the door on mm-hmm. and um starting over and I thought this is probably not a good place to be and try to address some more controversial issues. Um, mm-hmm. If I'm still kind of emotionally figuring out what, you know, what I'm about. Yeah. But then um, my training for my DNA job got insane. Like it's such an, ins- it's such a long and intense process. I had no time to do anything other than go to work and then come home and go to bed. Um and then COVID hit. And then finally this, I don't know what it was, but I was just, I was wasting a tremendous amount of time on TikTok. And I'm like, maybe I should try one of these videos. And that's kind of when I was like, you know what, maybe I'll, I'll start with this now. Um, I'll start re- reopening some of these issues, but saying it in a way where I don't feel I need to censor myself because I'm no longer in the field and I don't need to worry about being, you know, blacklisted or Mm. I don't have to worry about losing my job. Um, But I still get people reaching out to me from all over the place saying, Hey, what do you think about this? I'm frustrated about this. I wish you would write a blog about this. And I'd be like, I'm Mm. just not writing the blog anymore. And, but these are still, the same issues that I experienced as a trainer. So it just, there wasn't one precipitating event. It was just a number of things that kind of lined up and then I pulled the trigger. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to make current trainers feel like they have a voice. Um, I think that's incredibly important. And I know that you're a massive advocate for letting trainers know that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask hard questions and have discussions about morals and ethics. Um, You know, personally, I have an entire worksheet in my coaching course that's all about the ethics of the marine mammal industry. And just because we can do something, should we? Um, Which Mm -hmm. I think is really, really important because you can't be the best trainer that you want to be if you're not asking yourself, is this what I should be doing every step of the way? And if you get the answer, yes, amazing. You're doing something right. If you get a different answer, something needs to change. Yes. How do you feel speaking about these things on a platform such as TikTok? Do you ever get afraid that the nuance might get missed or it might get seen by someone who's not in the industry who might then potentially jump to conclusions? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely don't want things to be taken out of context. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do think there are, I, I almost feel like, at least so far, um, groups like the Dolphin Project who have commented on my videos, they don't share them. And I was sort of thinking about that. And I'm like, well, I, I don't really fit in with their messaging brand because I'm not anti-captivity. I'm yeah. just trying to make things more up to date or be more progressive or uh, advocate for a more progressive way of having um, dolphins and other marine mammals in human care. Mm. Um, but the other thing is I just try to stick with facts. So I don't want to assume anything. I just will say, this is my experience or um, I've had several trainers from places send me information or data um, that shows this, like the base cutting, the that video I did about the USDA finding on the base cutting. Uh, that someone sent that to me and um, I'm like, well, you can't really debate this or mm-hmm. this is not, if somebody gets a hold of that video, that's not in the field, they're going to ask the same questions that the rest of us are asking, which is why are you doing this? And I do think for those tough questions, if you're a facility that does that, you do need to be able to answer to the general public um, why you're doing stuff like that. But you have, they have a hard time addressing it just to the field itself. Um, yeah, so I definitely think things can be, you know, perceived in different ways. And I think people can have different reasons for doing things. The USDA base cutting thing, I'm not hugely familiar with. I know that in the facilities that I worked at here in Europe, it's not something that we did. Um, you know, the only, awesome. I mean, I was also working with killer whales, you know, so they're eating like hundreds of kilos of fish a day. So, you know, <laughs> if by the end of the day, they're not interested in food anymore and they just swim away, you're kind of like, I'm not going to be able to call over a three ton animal to give them five herring like they're gonna be okay (laughs) until the morning um or you know it's summer and all the boys are super sexual together and you're sitting there and you've got 20 kilos that you need to give and you stay until eight o'clock at night and they're still not coming over you're like okay the sea lions are gonna eat this tomorrow because it's all in the fridge (laughs) and I can't I can't give 15 kilos to my animal if it doesn't want to eat um you know and other places that I've seen that have potentially cut bases either because animals are sick animals are either I wouldn't say overweight because I don't think I've ever seen an overweight cetacean in human care I've definitely seen overweight stations in Scotland but the water up there is so cold that they need it yeah they need to be (laughs) yeah they need it um you know everywhere I've been it's always gone through the vet and it's always been very above board and there's never been trainers deciding oh yeah my animal's not quote unquote behaving so I'm just going to cut the base like I personally have never seen that happen and I absolutely would have a problem um, if I did see that happening so yeah I think if there's anywhere anyone who works at a facility where that is going on yes absolutely they should question it because it shouldn't be happening like that so I know you made a point in one of your TikTok videos about the ethics of using the entirety of an animal's base diet just for what they are quote unquote required to do, perhaps talking about, you know, shows or interactions. What are your thoughts on that? Um, that basically, if we are requiring 
animals to provide a product that has to be consistent for our paying customers. That using the food becomes can become very difficult to determine when for some places to determine when you're withholding food and when you are um, when you are determining what their total base diet will be. So the terms food edge, food motivation come to mind where it's like, okay, we've got a really busy um, summer season. We're going to have tons of people at the park. So we've got to have five shows a day where normally we have three and we're going to do 10 interactions a day where we normally have four, but it's like you have the same number of dolphins and a warmer season. So the bases are going to be lower than two. And now it's, we've got to make sure that they're hungry enough to do these things because we have to, we have to have the shows. We have to have the interactions versus another side of it, which would be, if the dolphins want to do it, then they'll do it. But if they are full or they are just low motivation, then we say, okay, well, there's just no four o'clock show today, or there's no three o'clock interaction today. Like how often does that really happen? Mm. Um, So I just feel like if you're using food to motivate them to do that, you're, you are potentially running into a serious ethical problem um, because you're leading. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I think for me, you know, you can even take food out of that argument entirely and say, based off of your animal's attitude, are you asking them to do too much? You know, from, from where I've worked, I feel very lucky that we never, you know, really ran into that problem of asking our animals to do too much. You know, maybe that's because I worked on killer rail teams. Also, I didn't work interactions. I think the argument is very different when you're working in an interaction-based facility because, yes, you are selling platforms. The more platforms that you sell, the more money a facility makes, and it's the more Mm -hmm. work that you're asking an animal to do. That's part of the ethics debate that I have with all of my mentees. You know, that's something that I don't think we should be putting pressure on trainers for that because I don't think they can really realistically affect change at that level. I think Agreed. that's definitely, you know, coming down from corporate. Is it yep. something that we should look towards changing? Yes, I agree. I think we should definitely look towards our animals' body language and their attitude and thinking, okay, realistically, what number of interactions or shows or presentations are our animals comfortable with? to what level are they continuing to interact and to seem to enjoy it and willingly participate, whether we have food or not? You know, are they coming over for secondaries, for play, for relationship, for attention? And if you get to the number of, oh yeah, we we do four and they seem like really into it. And if we push for five, we're starting to notice some demotivation. Then maybe we should start thinking about, okay, let's start having these conversations with corporate, with the people in charge and telling them, we really shouldn't be selling more than five a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. I think that's, that's kind of the place where I feel like trainers get stuck because you are, like you said, you can't really affect change at that level. Um, But you are the one solving those problems. So you're the one who's, if you've suddenly got five instead of four shows a day and you're noticing Uh, motivation start to decrease that then as a trainer you're like well I have the relationship with these animals and I'm going to work really hard to try to figure out how to um, 
how to meet the animal where they are mm. and and make it reinforcing and then it it becomes this tricky thing because you are the one actually interacting with the animal you're the one making the behavioral decisions but when you want to say like no please stop at five you know to use your example stop at five shows and not they're not in my experience there aren't many places that will really listen to trainers saying you got to trust us we know these animals better than you this is where the line is it's like sorry this is what was decided you guys now need to figure it out and because trainers are incredible (laughs) they figure out how to do these amazing things with less resources um but my question you know about that is why are we doing we're not doing that for the welfare of the animal we're doing that for the bottom line of the park and And we're doing that because we know that there's a line of people desperate to fill our shoes and to take our jobs and they hold that over trainers heads trainers know that they are so easily replaceable especially when you're in those first few years you know maybe once you start getting to senior level or assistant manager no you're not as easily replaceable but especially in the beginning it's very much like oh well you don't want to make a fuss. You don't want to be getting on the wrong side of any people because it's a very small industry. It's a very small field and you don't want to lose your job. Um, Absolutely. And I vehemently disagree with that. Yes, <laughs> I do too. I because do too. it stops trainers from advocating for themselves, not just their animals, but also for themselves. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. There's a lot of things you find yourself tolerating in and if you're at that kind of place, um, it's weird when, like, once I started working at the lab that I'm at now, it's just bizarre. It's such a different atmosphere. Like, you can ask questions and you can, you know, if you think something's unethical in forensic science, that's something we're really concerned about mm. is are we being unbiased and are are we being ethical? And we'll have some tough conversations, but you just never worry about Mm -hmm. getting in trouble for that. And see where where I worked at Marineland, it was very much like that. It was it was amazing. You know, everyone was heard, everyone had a voice. You could talk about training or research or anything and everything, whether it was about the animals or about the trainers, and you were heard. Like you were never in fear of being made fun of or ridiculed or losing your job, nothing somewhere else I worked (laughs) it very much wasn't that it was if you complain about anything you're no longer working animals like I have asked questions in the past and instead of getting an answer I got my name scrubbed off the board um I sat down in a meeting with my boss and complained about the treatment of women on the staff and was told to my face this is just how it is it's always been this way and it will never change um so you know issues those that have that has nothing to do with the animals that just has to do with um systemic issues within certain teams but yeah I think the fear of losing your job because it is a dream job at the end of the day and there's so many people that want it I think that's such a big reason why trainers are so afraid to use their voices within the industry I think you're right. I mean, I see that in uh, people who are trying to transition out of a zookeeping job that, and I had the same thing. It's the thought of like, well, what the heck am I going to do? If I don't do this, what am, yeah. 
what skill set I've spent so much time investing in this, not just getting the job itself, which is, as we've already discussed, this Herculean effort in most cases, but also the amount of, of experiential learning you do on the job. Mm-hmm. And then it's, what do I do? If what what kind of job am I capable of doing? And that's terrifying. It's terrifying. So I don't blame people for just either not speaking up or kind of trying to rationalize mm-hmm. some of the things that make them uncomfortable to try to, you know, just wake up and go to go to work and as usual. Um, but that's why I feel like that's where a management team can step in and help with that Massively. a little bit massively and, having good management is so important yeah even just explaining things to people you know if like so if a trainer does ask you why are we not feeding this full base to this animal instead of shutting it down it's like explain it so they can learn because like you said there are reasons why you might not be able to get the full diet to an animal and so don't you want your trainers to be able to discern the times when that's appropriate and when it's not, you know, yeah. oh, they, you know, we're noticing this and this and this, it's a sign of illness and blah, blah, blah. These are the next steps. Explain it. Don't, mm-hmm. don't just blow them off. Like they're too stupid to understand or that they're somehow not towing the line. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's as simple as explaining it to them. Yeah, I also loved that culture when we were when I was at Marineland. Um, and specifically regarding the animals' diets, our vet was amazing, and he was trying to get as close as possible to replicate the natural diet of a killer whale. Oh, um, oh cool! So we ended up feeding something ridiculous, like seven different species of fish, or something like that, to our animals. <laughs> and because he was changing so much of it, we had quite a fluctuation in our animals' weights because obviously every fish has a different caloric value, different fat content, etc. So our bases were changing like daily sometimes and <laughs> adjusting like how much whiting an animal was getting because that's a really lean fish compared to how much herring an animal was getting. And then, you know, some of our animals ended up getting a little bit constipated. And then we had to cut bases a little bit because they were so constipated and increased jello intake or, or ice oh. cubes so that they could have a bit more water to help flush it out. So, you know, sometimes there's just these things are so easily explained, you know, but if you're a trainer who's working at a certain place where you don't get those things explained, you'd be like, well, why are these animals' bases changing this often? Like, all of a sudden, they're being cut, like, a few pounds or a few kilos, and I don't understand why. So, yeah, don't be afraid to ask the questions, because sometimes there's just a really simple answer behind it. Yeah, and don't be afraid to answer the questions, too. You know, if you're in that yeah. position of 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 that authority, you know, please answer the questions. And don't assume, you know, hopefully you guys were, you know, hopefully you're careful when you hire people and you trust your trainers. Um, If you have somebody you don't trust to tell that information to, you have a problem, another bigger problem problem going on. Yes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, yeah, I think it was like that National Aquarium, the explaining things, the vet staff and the management team was very, very open about we're doing this because of this. And if this happens, then we're going to try this because X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And if you want more information, you can always call us. And I, I thought that was so great. I was like, this is awesome. It was just completely led by people who put the animals first. Yeah. And it was such a wonderful, wonderful feeling to work there. 
So what is your hope for the future of the marine mammal industry with regards to having these conversations? I just, I hope that these conversations are had, period, um, that they're had uh, openly, even just, and I don't just mean like in public, I mean openly at conferences and inspections and thing, audits, things like that, um, mm. that we aren't afraid to look at pro, like progressing how animals, how marine mammals are displayed in human care. Um, I just think there's a lot of zoo models that have very popular animals where they're not, you still keep the training, you still keep that part because we know how beneficial that is but that there's not like a we have to make money um from like interactions or something we don't need mm -hmm. to make money off these animals doing something people are paying admission to come in to see the animals and we're raising money in other ways like zoos do mm -hmm. um i think maintaining the trainer animal relationship is critical but the display part can be changed. I think that at least talked about without fear of seeming like you're, you know, PETA or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I love having those conversations and I have so many friends that are in the industry who are really, you know, educate, like educational presentations are the way forward. I'm the opposite side. I, I want theatrical shows. I love theatrical shows. I think educational presentations yes they have their role they're important absolutely we need to educate people but I just feel like theatrical shows bring people in and make people connect to the animals in a way that nothing else does maybe that's my perception because I'm a very theatrical person it could be <laughs> that you know everyone's brain works differently so you know no fear of judgment on either side I think is the important way to go forward I agree I think I think with what you're saying, you know, with how you're displaying animals, it's more of like, we're all coming. I feel like, I feel like those of us who are willing to have these discussions, even if we have differing opinions on how that's done, mm. the reason why we're having the discussion is the same, which is we want to connect people to these animals yes. because we care deeply for them and not just as individuals, but as a species and as mm -hmm. a part of a major ecosystem in dire straits right now. Yeah. And that's, oh, do we do that by connecting on a more emotional level because of through a, um, an inner, or I'm sorry, a, an educational, I'm sorry, I can't talk, <laughs> an entertainment show, you know, more entertainment yeah. theatrical show where we're playing on emotional connection. And, but it's like, if I would, if I were to think, okay, Hazel is opening her own facility and it's going to be all theatrical shows. I have zero problem with that because I know you and I know you would be following the animal's lead. You know, you would be the one that'd be like, we're, we're doing four shows a day. We're not doing five. Yeah. We're doing four. And it would still have some education in it. It would still well, have right. a balance, but right. yeah, it would be. But I mean, animals first, the yes, animals always. are, you know, and that's, and that's what matters. Not, oh, we got to squeeze in two more shows yeah. because this is tourist season. Um. So I do think a lot of us are coming from the same place and have to remember that when we have these discussions, if we have differences in how mm -hmm. we get there, um, but that we're comfortable having those discussions, just like you and I are having right now. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's a perfect message to end on, that regardless of what angle you're coming at this discussion, the animals always come first. Yes, they should. Always. 
So Kat, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's podcast, then please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe, and I will catch you all next week.